You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 61, The Battle of Chelsea Creek. For the last few weeks, I've tackled some more general issues about slavery and the army, and then the Patriots' capture of Fort Ticonderoga and Lake Champlain. Today, though, I want to turn back to Boston, where the Provincial Army had laid siege to General Gage and the regulars. Today, we look at several skirmishes between the two armies in the first weeks of the Siege of Boston. Now, as I've said in previous episodes, in the days and weeks following Lexington and Concord, thousands of provincials besieging the British garrison in Boston looked more like a mob than an army. The Massachusetts Provincial Congress commissioned Artemis Ward as commander-in-chief on May 19, 1775, and promoted him to full general. Ward, of course, had already been running things for a month. He assumed command of the army on April 20th, the day after Lexington. The Provincial Congress initially called for a New England army of 30,000 men, with Massachusetts providing about half of that. Supporting that large a standing army, though, proved impossible. The numbers of soldiers surrounding Boston sat between 10,000 and 15,000, mostly from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. With no central command or enlistment procedure, militiamen came and went at will. Entire units would get bored and go home. They often decided, on their own, that nothing was happening, they might as well get back to planting, or taking care of business back on their farms. Over time, leaders convinced most of the militia surrounding Boston to agree to serve for the remainder of the year, which reduced but did not eliminate the problem of soldiers simply coming and going at will. General William Heath took command of 2,000 soldiers in Roxbury on the right flank of the American lines. Heath also conveniently lived on his family farm nearby. Nothing like fighting on the front lines, but still going home to sleep in your own bed each night. Heath had been a long-time Massachusetts militia officer. He had proven an effective commander during the attack on the British column while they were returning from Concord. Heath's position immediately in front of Boston Neck was a critical one. If the British did not want to conduct a water landing, they would have to force their way across Boston Neck. This would probably be the only way they could seize Dorchester Heights. Therefore, Heath's position was what kept the regulars from marching out of Boston. Now, British General Gage and Admiral Graves had warned provincial leaders not to occupy Charlestown, threatening to bombard the town if occupied. Similarly, they warned them not to occupy Dorchester Heights or also face British wrath. Provincial leaders many still believing that a political compromise might avert further bloodshed, complied. As a result, Charlestown stood empty, 
and Dorchester Heights unoccupied. Aside from not having a strong single commander in charge of the provincial forces, a big problem was that units from outside Massachusetts did not feel any obligation to take orders from anyone from Massachusetts. The New Hampshire, Connecticut, or Rhode Island militia considered Massachusetts officers to be members of a separate army. They might be convinced to agree to instructions, but felt they were under no obligation to do so. These separate colonies were cooperating, but they did not recognize General Ward or any other leader from any other colony as having any authority to command them to do anything. And it was not just soldiers who refused to follow Massachusetts's lead. In early May, Connecticut Governor Trumbull sent a delegation to meet with British General Gage and see if they could not work out a political solution. Unlike most colonial governors, Trumbull was elected, meaning he could not be simply written off as a royal appointee who had more loyalty to London than the colonists. His decision to try to work out a political compromise without the Massachusetts Provincial Congress being involved would fall right into General Gage's plan to divide and conquer. The Massachusetts Congress went nuts over this meeting. They would lose about a third of their army if Connecticut decided to leave. Massachusetts President Joseph Warren sent Governor Trumbull several letters about this, pointing out the dangers of not showing a united front. Trumbull's delegation nevertheless met with Gage, but in the end, they decided to remain with the provincials. One of the decisive points was that after Gage had promised to let Bostonians leave the city and then reneged on that promise, Trumbull decided he could not trust Gage. So Connecticut stayed with the Patriots and the provincial army. As spring moved to summer, men sat around camp with little to do. They refused any orders they found unreasonable. Thousands of men in such a confined area soon led to health problems. Failure to dig proper latrines made things worse. Typhus and other illnesses spread through camps, eventually killing hundreds of them over the summer. Disease also killed hundreds of regulars in Boston as well. In fact, disease would kill far more soldiers than battle deaths would over the course of the war. The provincials apparently also annoyed British officers by flying the Union Jack in Cambridge and referring to themselves as the King's Army. They referred to the regulars in Boston as the Parliament Army, an obvious comparison to the divisions of the English Civil War a century earlier. But no one still considered this an independence movement. Colonists still thought that Parliament was out of control and that appeals to King George would eventually convince the Crown to order Parliament to stop infringing on colonial rights. After a few weeks, both sides started pushing the other side with provocations that could possibly reignite active warfare. On May 13th, General Israel Putnam, for no good reason, led 2,000 men onto the no-man's land on the Charlestown Peninsula. The battalion marched across Bunker Hill, Breeds Hill, and through the village down to the water's edge, where they shouted at naval vessels with cannon pointed at them. They eventually marched back out of Charlestown. This was a dangerous move for no good purpose, since the Navy might have opened fire on them. But Putnam felt it was important to give the soldiers something to do. An idle army is a dangerous army. 
it also gave them a chance to test the enemy and see how trigger-happy they were. British officers aboard the ship Somerset said they would have opened up on the provincials if any of the men had fired a single musket in their direction. Everyone on both sides held their fire, though. Putnam and his brigade marched back off the Charlestown Peninsula and back to Continental Lines in Cambridge. Now, no one had ordered Putnam to do this, and Putnam didn't inform any of the other general officers about his plans. This was just another chaotic event that shows just how disorganized the provincial leadership was. After several weeks, the British soon grew concerned about access to fresh food. The siege had cut off trade with local farmers. The army lacked meat, fresh fruits and vegetables, as well as hay for the horses and for bedding. Several small islands dotted Boston Harbor, where locals grew crops and raised animals. With the British Navy in control of the harbor, General Gage figured he could make use of these island resources. On May 21st, Gage sent four small sloops over to Grape Island on the south side of the harbor, just a few hundred feet from the mainland. The island's Tory owner gave Gage permission to collect the harvested hay on the island and bring it back to Boston. The sight of regulars moving out of the city caused some locals along the coast to flee, fearing a surprise landing. General John Thomas, serving with General Heath on the right flank of the provincial line, deployed three companies of Massachusetts militia from Roxbury to engage the soldiers. Provincial Congress President Joseph Warren joined the soldiers. The provincials fired at the island from the coast, but were too far away to do anything. The regulars went about loading the hay onto their ships, largely ignoring the provincials. Now, like much of Boston Harbor, the water around Grape Island was too shallow for most boats, but the water and the muddy bottom made it too difficult to wade out to the island either. Provincials really could not get to the island from the coast at low tide. By early afternoon, the tide came in enough that the provincials were able to launch a few boats. They rowed out to confront the regulars. The two sides exchanged fire as the regulars retreated. The regulars boarded ships on one side of the island, just as the provincials landed on the other. Neither side inflicted any casualties. Now, I've read two different sources on this fight, one saying that the fleeing British burned the hay on the island to deny it to the provincials. Another said the provincials burned the hay after chasing off the regulars in order to prevent them from coming back for more. In either event, the crops remaining on the island were burned, so no one else could use them. A few days later, on May 25th, the British landed a crew on another island, known as Long Island, in the harbor to obtain more hay. This raid was further away from the coast and went without incident. The raids on Grape Island and Long Island, though, raised provincial concerns over resources. They needed to remove or destroy any crops or livestock on islands or near the coast that would provide potential resources to the Boston garrison. Hog Island and Noddle Island both sat near the north shore, separated from the mainland only by Chelsea Creek. The two islands lay just east of Charlestown. And if you want to see a map of Boston Harbor where all these islands exactly were, there is a map available on my blog, which you can view at blog.amrevpodcast.com. 
Now, Chelsea Creek, which covered the northern border of the islands, was large enough to keep animals on the island from wandering away, making it an ideal location to graze livestock. The islands were pretty easy to access from the mainland. The creek separating Hog Island from the mainland and the one separating Hog Island from Noddle Island were only about knee-deep at low tide, meaning soldiers could easily ford the water to get to the islands. General Gage received intelligence and warned Admiral Graves that provincials might be planning an island raid. Graves told Gage to deploy soldiers to the island, but Gage decided the Navy could defend the islands themselves. He was not going to take orders from the Navy. When Gage did not act, Graves deployed a small contingent of 40 Marines to the island. The Navy had relied on the island for access to food supplies, and of greater concern for Admiral Graves, the Navy kept a large supply of wood materials on the island, which it used for ship repairs. Gage's intelligence proved correct. The provincials acted to remove the crops and animals for their own use and to deny them to the enemy. At dawn on May 27th, the Committee of Safety ordered Massachusetts Colonel John Nixon to lead several hundred soldiers onto Hog Island to herd the animals onto the mainland. They kept pretty quiet and went unnoticed for most of the day. Then, after moving on to Noddle Island, they set fire to a barn full of hay around 2 p.m. This fire alerted the British Navy to their activity. Graves probably ordered more Marines to land on Noddle Island in support of the one company that was already responding to the incursion. He also ordered his nephew, Lieutenant Thomas Graves, commander of the small sloop, the Diana, to sail up Chelsea Creek and cut off the enemy retreat. With the Diana's cannon cutting off their retreat and the Marines attacking them on the island, the British hoped to surround and capture the provincial force. The Diana's guns, though, could not get close enough. The provincials continued to drive the livestock off the land, while a few of them formed a rearguard action at the creek between Hog and Noddle Islands. This provincial rearguard action effectively stopped the British Marines' advance, killing several of them and eventually forcing a British retreat. The Diana, though, in an attempt to get closer to the provincials, sailed a little too far up the creek into shallow waters with the tide receding. They attempted to tow the ship back down the creek, but took fire from the provincials as they did so. The tow ships fled, and the wind died down, preventing the Diana from escaping under her own power. The British ship was stuck in the mud as evening fell. News of the grounded ship flew through the provincial camps around Cambridge. General Israel Putnam and President Joseph Warren brought more men and cannons to the coast where they could fire on the now-stranded Diana. The ship attempted to fight back, supported by marine cannons firing from a hill on Noddle Island. An overly excited General Putnam led some of his soldiers hip-deep into the water, attempting to get closer to the ship with only their muskets. Admiral Graves deployed at least two cannons onto Noddle's Island and the ship Britannia to provide further cover for the Diana. The provincials brought two smaller cannons and about a thousand men to the site in an attempt to capture the ship. This marked the first time the provincials fired cannons in battle since fighting began. 
The firefight lasted well into the night. As the tide continued to flow out, the Diana not only stuck to the bottom, but began to tilt to one side, making it impossible to fire her cannons. Eventually, the crew could not stand on the deck as the ship was almost on its side. Patriot fire had wounded several of the crew, who Lieutenant Graves ordered removed to the Britannia. Around midnight, Lieutenant Graves had to accept the impossible situation and ordered his men to abandon ship. The crew escaped on longboats. The provincials then stormed the abandoned ship, still under fire from Noddles Island and the Britannia. They looted everything of value, including four cannons and several swivel guns. The provincials then set fire to the ship, and in the pre-dawn hours of May 28th, the ship's powder magazine exploded. Although it was a small ship, the provincials saw the destruction of an armed naval vessel as a great victory. The provincials only reported a few wounded, none killed. Admiral Graves reported two sailors killed and several wounded. However, according to other sources, Graves deliberately underreported the battle casualties. A witness in Boston reported at least 10 sailors were buried the day after the battle, with other dead from the battle buried elsewhere. Some estimates report as many as 30 sailors and Marines killed. A British officers frequently undercounted battle deaths when trying to minimize their failures on the battlefield. The lost soldiers could easily be counted later as deaths from disease. Israel Putnam's bravery under fire at Chelsea Creek, as well as the leadership of the provincial president, Joseph Warren, only enhanced the already good reputations of both men. After the battle, Putnam and Warren met with General Ward to discuss the day's events. Putnam, who, as I said, had waded into the water waving his sword as the Diana fired at his men repeatedly and missed, commented that he wished they could do that every day if only to teach the men how little danger there was from cannonballs. General Ward, still looking to end the conflict without an all-out war, chastised him, warning that he was going to provoke a British attack that they could not defeat. Warren did not seem to want to disagree with either of them and simply said to Putnam, I admire your spirit and respect General Ward's prudence. Both will be necessary for us, and one must temper the other. Several days later, the provincials crossed over to the islands again, removing any remaining animals. The British Navy fired a few cannons at them, but made no further attempts to engage the enemy. The provincials also burned several more buildings on the island, including a mansion belonging to the island's owner, Henry Howe Williams. Now, Mr. Williams supported the Patriot cause, but the army deemed the home in danger of being of use to the enemy. Williams would have to wait more than a decade to receive compensation for his losses. In June, the provincials made a third raid, destroying a warehouse, the last building on the island, and removing or destroying the last few items of value. After that, neither side made much use of the islands for the remainder of the siege. The civilian leaders of the Provincial Congress remained divided on how to resolve the current crisis. They also grew concerned that their own provincial army could pose a danger. As with any army, soldiers began muttering about the incompetence and imbecility of the politicians supposedly running the show. These soldiers showed little deference even to their own officers. 
Soon, the age-old fears of standing armies threatening civilian government took hold. Provincial Congress President Joseph Warren was one of the few men who seemed to have a handle on how to keep control. In addition to getting involved personally whenever there was a firefight, Warren spent much of his time wandering through the camps, talking to the soldiers. He not only got a good feel for what the men were thinking, he was able to squelch rumors and provide explanations for what was happening. This went a long way toward keeping the men's discontent from boiling over into desertion or mutiny. On May 22nd, the Provincial Congress passed a law essentially declaring open season on all Tories who remained in the colony. Any who had not already sought shelter in Boston or left the colony altogether had to go into hiding or have a sudden change of heart about their political views. Congress also petitioned the Continental Congress in Philadelphia for guidance on how to proceed. The Provincial Congress really had no legal authority to do anything. A year earlier, the First Continental Congress ordered Massachusetts not to form a sovereign civilian government, which would be considered treason. As such, Massachusetts was not sure how far it could go and still retain the support of the other colonies. Mostly to ensure continued cooperation of the other colonies, the Provincial Congress asked the Continental Congress to take command of the Provincial Army and make it part of a larger Continental Army. President Warren entrusted delivery of the petition to Benjamin Church. It is not entirely clear why he chose Church. Some historians speculate that Warren suspected Church's loyalty to the cause and guessed, correctly, that he might be providing intelligence to General Gage. Whether by luck or by actual suspicion, Warren's mission sent Church out of the colony for the three weeks before the Battle of Bunker Hill, leaving General Gage without one of his best sources of information. Next week, three new British generals arrive in Boston, prepared to crush this little rebellion once and for all. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, back again for another American Revolution podcast book review. Before I get into today's recommendation, I want to remind you that if you're not already following me on Twitter, please follow me at AmRevPodcast to get announcements about the show. I give updates about the show or other random facts about the American Revolution. Also, if you want to give me feedback, 
tweeting me is a great way to do that. I've also opened up the comments section on my blog, and you can email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. You can also join my American Revolution podcast Facebook group. I've also started answering American Revolution questions on Quora, so that if that's a site you use, we may run into each other there. Some of you may not know this, but I work in Philadelphia, right across the street from Independence Hall. Really, I can see it from my window. Well, actually my boss's window, since he gets the better view. But if you're ever in town to see the sights of the American Revolution and just want to say hi, just give me a yell. So, on to today's book recommendation. American Spring by Walter Bornman. This book covers the events in and around Boston in the spring of 1775, from Lexington and Concord through the Battle of Bunker Hill. It gives some descriptions of minor events, like the Chelsea Creek skirmishes that I discussed today, and tries to give a good narrative of the first weeks of the war. The book is able to get into a fair amount of detail, given that it's covering two or three months in about 400 pages of text. The author, Walter Borneman, is a former lawyer, at least I think he's former. For the last 15 years or so, he's written a number of award-winning books related to various aspects of American military history. He published American Spring in 2014, and it has met with great critical success. I very much enjoyed the book. If you want to get into more details about the subjects I've been covering over the last couple of weeks and the next couple of weeks, this book is a great resource. Like many great books where they make zillions of them in the first year it's published, those of us who wait a few years are able to get them at a bargain and you can pick up a used copy of this book on Amazon for under $5, including shipping. So, it's a great book at a great price. Also, because it's such a popular book, it's more likely to be in your local library, in case you prefer to borrow it for free. But I guess I shouldn't have to explain to you how to borrow books. However you get your books, though, if you're interested in learning more about the first few weeks of the Revolution, American Spring is a great read. And just a reminder, if you do want to buy it and order through Amazon, I'd really appreciate it if you could click through the Recommendation of the Week link that I have on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. That's A-M-R-E-V podcast.com. If you click on that link and buy the book, Amazon kicks a few cents back to me to help keep the American Revolution podcast running. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you can join me again next week at the American Revolution Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.